The following content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hello, and welcome everyone to Always Another Way podcast. My name is Marina Sprocky Spriggs, and I have a master's in professional counseling. I'm the Ippy Award-winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life, A Nasty Divorce, A Kid's Eye View. I write positive divorce advice for the Huff Post, and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast speaks to outside-of-the-box thinkers, and it's for those who hear the call of hope and always another way. And if you're very rigid and set in your beliefs, then this probably isn't your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can and do change. And today, we're going to talk about something that nobody likes to talk about, death. And we're all going to die and I know, maybe some of you, like me, think we're invincible. I was talking to my grandfather this morning. He's going to be 95 this year. And he sounded really out of breath. And I asked him what was going on. And he's just beat up because he power washed the fence and was just really bummed out because he can't do the things he used to do. And, you know, I had to remind him that that's what happens when you get to be 94 and 95. And I certainly don't like to think about my grandfather dying, although I know he will. But how do you talk about that? And my guest, Dr. Sam Harrington, has written the book on that. It's called At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. And Dr. Sam Harrington is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Wisconsin Medical School. He concentrated his practice at Sibley Memorial Hospital. His work as Sibley's patient safety officer representative to the Johns Hopkins Medical Board of Trustees and his service on the board of a nonprofit hospice in Washington, D.C., informed his passion for helping aged patients make appropriate end-of-life decisions. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Sam Harrington. Marina, thank you very much for having me. Hello. I'm looking forward to this. Yes. So let's, um, we'll kind of dive in and ask you, I know you've been a physician for a long time, but what inspired you to write this particular book? Well, in a few words, it was my parents. Uh, my mother, a nurse, taught me empathy, and my father, a lawyer, uh, exemplified excellent decision-making toward the end of a long life. But in a broader sense, it was that during 35 years of my training and practice, there were changes in American healthcare uh, that really informed this book. And then with the inspiration of my parents helped me to create it. And what happened in American medicine, I went into practice in 1982. What happened was an explosion of technology uh, that really has been exponential in compared to what the technology that preceded my years of practice, a commercialization of medicine that caused medicine to go from, in a sense, a healing art to a giant commercial enterprise 
and then superimposed on that in a small way, watching my parents age, dwindle, and die, I, I realized that there was a disconnect in how medical systems, and myself as a super subspecialist, treated elderly patients toward the end of their lives, uh, and what my parents wanted at the end of their own lives. And it was that disconnect where patients are being over-treated in hospitals, uh, elderly patients uh, is the focus of my book, and how my parents uh, chose to pass away at home uh, and that is what inspired me to try and help other patients come to similar choices. Because in fact, we have to recognize that 80 or 90% of elderly patients express a preference to die at home, but 60% of them die in hospitals or skilled nursing under, having undergone recent aggressive treatments. Yes, and that's just... Um... Just, just kind of what happens. And so let's talk a little bit maybe about um, if you want to talk about like what happened with either your mother or father first, and then we can kind of go in to the other things about the book. And maybe that'll help kind of frame up for people with that scenario, how this actually, how this actually works and what you're talking about. Well, my father was really the focus of the book. Uh, my mother had already passed away and will, of lung cancer, and we'll get back to that uh, when we talk about the hard conversation and prognosis. But my father was the uh, focus of the book because I'd been thinking about writing this book, but it hadn't crystallized until a discussion I had with him about what's an, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, a ballooned blood vessel in his abdomen that had gotten to the size that it was a risk for rupture. Now, my father is a lawyer had a client who died of an aortic aneurysm and he did some legal work while the man was undergoing emergency surgery and shortly thereafter. Uh, so he knew the consequences of a ruptured aneurysm. And I had flown out to visit with him. I practiced in Washington, D.C. My dad lived in Milwaukee. And I went out to talk to him about treatment options for an aneurysm. He was 88 and his uh, two internists and uh, three surgeons had said, well, you're in such good health, you should have a complete uh, surgical cure so this never is an issue again. Uh, and I thought that uh, massive abdominal surgery on my father risked his independent lifestyle. Uh, he was living alone, he was taking care of himself in every capacity. And I thought that such a surgery might uh, cause a prolonged hospitalization, potential complications, potential nursing home placement. And so I was trying to talk him into a what was considered a temporary procedure, like a giant uh, cardiac catheterization to strengthen this aneurysm. And it would, that offered uh, basically one day of outpatient treatment, and in return he got uh, perhaps three to five years uh, with a, without having to worry about the aneurysm uh, again. Uh, so I was a little bit surprised when I offered this alternative and he, he looked at me, he pointed his finger, he furrowed his brow, he clenched his jaw and he said, Sam, why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go? Wow. And, and I suddenly realized that even though we had discussed 
advanced directives in the past, and we have kind of clinically made decisions about um, breathing tubes and feeding tubes, etc. We were now down in the weeds at an emotional level dealing with a problem where he was telling me that he was willing to say no to emergency surgery because in return he would take palliative medication uh, and die quickly uh, and decisively and without prolonged debility. And, and of course, in my mind, he would die prematurely uh, because he had a treatable illness. Right. But this crystallized the idea that if a patient has some knowledge about, of their disease, some understanding of uh, what will happen, a vision of their death, uh, they can make better decisions um, in the long run. And so th the take-home lesson for me was, and for my three sisters, who were, we were all working together, trying to take care of my father, organize his life with him and for him, uh, the take-home lesson was if we came across an illness that would allow him to pass away quickly and decisively, we were to, and comfortably, we were to decline that, Ill, uh, that treatment and uh, step into palliative care and eventually hospice care if necessary. So that was the take-home lesson, and that crystallized for me the structure of the book, uh, which was is to sort of outline what is wrong with American medicine when dealing with elderly patients. My father got bad advice, as far as I was concerned, mm -hmm. with this major surgical approach. Uh, the middle part of the book is to educate patients about illness, their particular illness, and the final part of the book is how to make these have the conversations, uh, study your prognosis, and then uh, make decisions on how to uh, put them into an advanced directive, both verbally and written. Right. So that's that's the that was that was the kickoff for the whole project. And what I what I really like about that too is you know and how you frame that up. And when I was reading that about your father and and so you're a doctor and so you kind of know these things and what's what's cool about this book for anyone who is not a doctor is that you actually set up certain illnesses and the things that kind of happen but before we go into that what is let's kind of talk about what is a hospitalized or medicalized death the kind of one you were worried about that people can slip into well a medicalized death in my mind is when somebody gets more treatment and more technologically aggressive treatment than they wanted and with the end result that they die in a place they don't want to be. So I think of there's the, there's the hospitalized death where you die in the emergency room uh, undergoing aggressive treatments and or in the intensive care unit undergoing aggressive treatments and painful treatments as opposed to <clears throat> dying quietly at home. So that's a medic one medicalized death. Another medicalized death is to die uh, effectively warehoused in a nursing home, isolated from family up to a point, uh, going back and forth to the hospital for uh, various treatments, which really aren't uh, improving the quality of your life. So if a, if a patient is effectively bed bound in a nursing home, being treated in a series of, uh, or a serial manner, one after another, antibiotics for a bladder infection, antibiotics for a pneumonia, uh, a variety of other uh, uh, tubes and applications, uh, 
that is another form of medicalized death that I think most people would prefer, or many people would prefer to avoid. And that's the goal of my book is to help patients uh, find answers to those problems. Yes. And so in your book, you describe a variety of different um, kind of illnesses that sort of pop up or things that can happen at the end of life to make decisions about. And could we maybe just talk about sort of one of those and sort of, and just sort of frame up for people. Okay. So here's an example of something and here's the two ways you can go because your doctor may recommend A, B, C, and D that could have these kinds of consequences. But here's also the other option. And I think, you know, one of the examples went back to your mother about lung cancer at her age and stage. Maybe it was like a 10-month or something like that was the, you know, probably how long you have to live if you did all these things, but then nine months if you just went into the hospice and just left it alone. Um, Well, there are multiple ways to die, and and we can sort of parse up medicine into a very complicated scenario. But in the book, I try and point out that there are six illnesses that, according to the Center for Disease Control, are responsible for 90% of deaths in patients over the age of 65. And if we look at those illnesses and find out which one applies to us and then make inquiries about that illness, we can simplify the process and get a healthy, get a better perspective on what to do. So the six illnesses are congestive heart failure, cancer, lung disease, stroke, diabetes, and dementia. Now, my mother had multiple illnesses. She passed away at age 82. She had osteoporosis. She had previously had breast cancer. Uh, and a mastectomy. She had she had a, a parathyroid adenoma, which is a gland in the neck, which had caused some problems. And then at age 82, she was diagnosed with pneumonia. And as the pneumonia cleared, she uh, we saw that the underlying problem was really a lung cancer. And when that was staged, it was stage four. So here we are. She now is one of the chronic illnesses that commonly causes death in people over the age of 65. And stage four lung cancer is basically a terminal illness. Uh, At the time that she was diagnosed, her life expectancy was 10 months, or I misspoke, the median life expectancy was 10 months Mm -hmm. for all comers. And I knew that at uh, age 82 with her multiple medical problems, she was not likely to be one of those who lived 10 months Uh, She was already weak and frail. Uh, She would probably not live uh, 10 months. And so uh, that the living 10 months would be reserved for somebody who was diagnosed prematurely at age 50 with stage four lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So I sat down and had a conversation with her about this. And it was a very emotional conversation. Um, we, We discussed median life expectancy uh, what is it? What does that mean? I said, well, mom, um, it, if the median life expectancy is 10 months, that means that if there were 100 people with your diagnosis in your apartment, it would be very crowded, but half of them would be gone uh, by September, by October. We had this discussion in January. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and said, uh, are you telling me that I'm going to die? 
And I said, yes. And then after a certain amount of hand-wringing, my father was there. We discussed uh, a variety of things, but we we ultimately came to the point that we were going to focus on my daughter's wedding, which was in that uh, in May of that year, it would be, would be her first grandchild's wedding, and we wanted her to be alive for that. And recognizing that her prognosis was grim thereafter, we would not we would we would use hospice care at the earliest possible convenience, so that um, uh, she'd be more comfortable, and we'd avoid aggressive treatment. So during the first few months of her lung cancer. She did have some early uh, chemotherapy in a sense to try and slow it down. And that's kind of magical thinking for the people who are listening, who are medically oriented. But it gave her, she was able to feel good about uh, trying to treat it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we did get her to my daughter's wedding. She did go into hospice before she traveled so she could travel and have hospice benefits when she was in Washington, D.C., and wouldn't have to be, uh, in the event of a catastrophe, would not have to uh, be swept into the intensive care unit of my hospital, but could go to the emergency room, get treated for comfort and go into a hospice bed, or even get uh, hospice uh, nurses to visit her in the hotel room if something was comparatively minor. But the point is, because she understood uh, the uh, implications of a, of a 10-month uh, median survival, she was able to make good decisions and avoid excessive treatment. And uh, I think that if other, if other patients are diagnosed with, uh, at an advanced age with one of these six chronic illnesses, they should talk to their doctor, as she spoke with me, and get a kind of hard-nosed prognosis. And uh, if they don't get that prognosis, they should uh, talk to another doctor. Uh, you don't have to, you don't have to, a prognosis doesn't mean you have to give up. It means you factor that into your thinking as to how aggressive you're gonna be or how aggressive you're gonna allow other people to be. Right. And I, and I like about that, too, is because, you know, as you get older, too, and these things are just going to happen. But then, you know, and even for you, like almost a difficult conversation um, with parents. And so how does one, because it's also that topic that we all know, but, you know, at least in my thinking, like, I'm just thinking about my grandpa, if I talk about that, then it's like almost like I'm, I'm wishing for him to die or I'm thinking about for him to die. But I'm that's not what I'm doing at all. But to be responsible, and in the case of your mother or anyone else, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, and maybe other people too, if you had nine months left, would you rather them be not hooked up to things, being where you are, enjoying the people that you want, or if that nine months is in treatments and hospital and not, you know, quality versus quantity, how do you, how do you set up that conversation to your parents? How do you have the hard conversation? Well, you have to, I, there's, there's no magic formula. And that's what I say in the book. I've thought about this long and hard, but it is very difficult to set up a magic way to discuss things easily with patients and to get them to engage in what we call the conversation or at an advanced state of illness, the hard conversation. Because 
Uh, nobody wants to do it. Doctors don't want to do it. Patients don't want to do it. Family doesn't want to do it. But the my advice is simply recognize that the alternative to not making good decisions is worse. And you can't make good decisions if you haven't got a plan and haven't had the conversation. So the alternative is worse. Therefore, blunder ahead and have the discussion. So some, the discussion can come up in a variety of different ways. Uh, I remember when my father fell in the kitchen, uh, one of my sisters was visiting him. He fell, uh, he didn't hurt himself too much. Uh, uh, he was minimal injuries, just bruises. And he wouldn't have called us and told us that, but because my sister was visiting, she called us and we got on the phone and chatted uh, and ultimately, I had a conversation with my father about a first alert button. You know, do you, what do you want to do? Well, if I fall and nobody's here, I'll just lie on the floor and wait for help or slip away. And I said, well, you know, Dad, that's a very painful way to go, meaning lying on the floor. It probably means you broke something. It means you can't move. You can't get. So that would be very painful. Let's talk about a first alert button and then once you get it, you're talking about a first alert button, don't stop there. Talk about the next step in the end of life conversation because every milestone is an opportunity to discuss, you know, dad, uh, we're, okay, you wanna do a first alert button rather than a call uh, tree with friends where everybody calls each other every morning. Mm -hmm. So let's go over your advanced directives, thinking about the fact that the fact you fell means something is wrong. Your balance is off, you're gonna fall again. Maybe you, you've got uh, nerve disease in your feet, you don't feel them so well, called a neuropathy. Um, let's, how's that gonna affect your advanced directive? Let's not stop here, let's pursue this just a little bit. And whenever uh, Aunt Millie has her fourth or fifth course of chemotherapy, maybe family members should be talking about that or um, when so-and-so does break a hip, uh, let's talk about that and the implications for that friend and then translate that into what we're gonna do for you under those circumstances. I love that because it's just, it is important to have these types of conversations and just, um, and, and one more thing if we can um, dive in. So there's a part of the book where you talk about just sort of when you get to the end about the, um, about the refusal of food and water. And I know when I first started in, people can read about it too, but we're like, oh no, what is that like? But then, then, well, and then we'll delve, delve that into what is a good death look like? Well, before I get into the refusal of, eat for, of food and water, let me talk about what a good death looks like. Sounds because. Good. That, that, that vision is going to be different for everybody. My father's vision was to die quickly and decisively uh, of an aortic aneurysm. He was going to decline emergency surgery. Now, every, not everybody has the opportunity to decline that, but we will all have the opportunity to decline something. It might be a pacemaker for heart failure or hemodialysis for kidney failure. It might be the fifth course of chemotherapy for cancer, or it might be antibiotics for pneumonia that frequently carries elderly patients away. But the, the, the vision of a death is um, something that translates into a good death for that person, 
But again, most people wouldn't want to do what my father was proposing to do. So uh, let me talk about my idea of a good death is really to die quietly at home, uh, perhaps after a big party where we've exchanged pleasantries with family members and uh, had a good meal. I mean, that would be very nice for me. That would be my ideal way to go. But the attributes of a good death have been uh, described in medical reports, and I've sort of condensed them down to five characteristics of a good death that I think it's worth talking about. The most important, based on academic work, attribute of a good death is control. The sense that people uh, have some control over the decision-making at the end of their life. Uh, comfort is the next important attribute of a good death, that the absence of pain. Uh, closure is the third most important, and that means an opportunity to reconcile with family and friends, to, uh, to come to peace with them. Uh, affirmation is important because that it's important that patients feel valued, that their values are appreciated by those around them. And then trust, being in a familiar environment uh, is important. So control, comfort, closure, affirmation, and trust define a good death to me. And if you were to flip the definitions of each one of those, control becomes helplessness, for example, or comfort becomes pain, or closure becomes isolation. Well, if you flip those, you've described what it's like to die in the intensive care unit with helplessness, pain, isolated from family, uh, in a state of denial, and frustrated that you can't trust your surroundings, you don't know what's happening, uh, et cetera. So to me, that is that is the those are the attributes of a good death. Yeah, very nice. Because that really is it's another way of just not letting things just happen, but taking control and where you can and thinking about these things ahead of time and having thoughtful conversations. And, Absolutely. And so I really like that. And then, um, you know, can and we'll just talk briefly, real quick, about the. Um, you know, of, of the, you, know, you gave some of the choices you could make. You can refuse food and water um, and kind of make those plans if you knew that was coming up. Exactly. Now that re re refusing food and fluid is a, re a very advanced uh, way of hastening death. And that is something that is really only done after uh, a patient is in hospice care has had a long time to think about it and has and finds that uh, the quality of their life cannot be improved and the quality of their life is so poor that they decide that they want to speed up the process. Okay. And uh, so it's it's really it's really sort of equivalent to uh, the decision that a patient in certain states might make if they are offered the opportunity for what's called medical aid in dying. So it, that's a very advanced stage of um, aging and dying. But it is also effective and quite painless and reasonably comfortable. People are afraid to give up 
eating and drinking, and yet uh, when people do, uh, they, they don't suffer hunger pains because they are in a state of advanced illness. The absence of food causes them to burn calories and protein that leads to a condition called ketosis, which causes euphoria, in fact. Uh, stopping liquid causes dehydration, and dehydration is quite painless uh, when it's not coupled with another illness. So dehydration alone is painless, and most people die within a couple of weeks, and most of that, most of the time is spent in a coma so that uh, they're not suffering at all. They, they're euphoric at first, slip into a coma, and then um, pass away. Now, it's not, it's not nearly as quick as medical aid in dying, but, uh, but where studied hospice nurses note that, the, that they prefer uh, voluntarily refusing to eat and drink uh, in some studies because it's perfectly effective. Uh, there's no sense of prematurity to it, and um, it's, there's no sense of um, impulsiveness. So let me explain that for a second. Mm -hmm. I, I had this discussion many times with my father. Not many, I had it a couple of times, I should say. <clears throat> but he never wanted to stop eating. He was afraid of starvation, although he shouldn't have been. And I couldn't explain it. And of course, I didn't push it because that's his decision. <clears throat> but he's, um, and he was not, uh, allowed to take medical aid in dying in the state of Wisconsin. It wasn't available to him. But I will say as a professional that I'm, very, I'm a little ambivalent about medical aid in dying. It would take a very special circumstance for me to support it. And if my father uh, had the ability to, to use that medication because he was in one of the other states where it's allowed, and if he availed himself of that opportunity, meaning he was completely mentally competent and physically able to self-administer the medication, I personally would have felt cheated out of some quality time with him. And uh, so I'm glad that we really didn't have to have that particular discussion. But if you live in one of those states, I think it's a discussion that those patients in those states should have. It's another decision that people should have an opportunity to make and should think about. Yes, and we're just about close to time, and that's the kind of point you do have a lot of decisions to make. And so where can um, people find you at? Uh, well, on my website, samharrington.com, has all my contact information, my uh, speaking engagements, it has some other about recordings and podcasts. It, uh, I'm happy to entertain questions. I've done a couple of, uh, I've Skyped with a church on the West Coast to discuss these issues at the, uh, at the invitation of a pastor who contacted me. And uh, my wife and I also write on a totally different topic, something called uh, a blog called Gap Year After 60, which is found at gapyearafter60.com, where I discuss uh, medical issues and what I describe as reinvention, meaning I was a clinical physician and then I retired and became an author. And my wife uh, discusses uh, 
reinvention. Uh, she is a writer and an editor. So it's for people on a different note, not about end of life, but about a, sort of a second phase to life. I love that. That is so cool. So make the most of your time while you're here. But definitely, uh, you definitely want to pick up this book for everyone because we are all going to die someday. And hopefully, with fingers crossed and good luck, you can make it to the end of the life and a very good death. But it is just a super informative book that I think I think really anybody of the you know advanced age or even like just getting older of 40 should read because you will be in that advanced age. You can talk to your parents are probably getting to that age. And it just gives you a lot of options that I think a lot of people truly don't know they have. And I really want to thank you for writing this book and putting this information out here, which I think is so important to have a conversation about this. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Marina. The time flew by. It did. Well, thank you all. And you know that there is always another way.